Thanks for tuning in. One of the things that makes a program like Outcasting possible is financial support from listeners like you. Please visit us at outcastingmedia.org and click on support to make your tax-deductible contribution. Thanks. It has been somewhat alarming to see a couple of the justices who have given public speeches and have written formal opinions from the court that conservative Christians, in their view, are under attack and being victimized by the social changes that are happening around us. Perhaps they see some of their privilege being taken away, and they are fierce about it. They're very angry about it. It's not a threat to anyone else. It might reduce the privilege that some groups have had, a privilege to disrespect others, perhaps, but it is in keeping with core American values, and it really isn't a threat to anybody else. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. Outcasting is produced in New York by Media for the Public Good, online at outcastingmedia.org. Hi, I'm Chris. This is the 14th part of our in-depth conversation with Jennifer C. Pizer, a civil rights attorney at Lambda Legal, about how claims of religious liberty are being weaponized to justify discrimination against LGBTQ people. If you've missed any of the series, you can listen on our website, outcastingmedia.org. We've been talking about the court case of Fulton v. City of Philadelphia, in which a Catholic adoption agency asserted a religious liberty claim to essentially opt out of the city's non-discrimination policy, by refusing to certify same-sex couples as potential foster parents. On June 17, 2021, the Supreme Court unanimously ruled in favor of the adoption agency, but on the narrow grounds that because the city has discretion to grant exceptions to the non-discrimination policy, it can't deny religious exemptions while approving non-religious ones. On this edition, Jenny and Outcaster Isha continue their conversation about the case. Hi Jenny, welcome back to Outcasting. Hi, it's great to be back. We've been talking about the narrow, technical grounds on which this case was decided. The case wasn't a sweeping statement that when the constitutional guarantees of equality under the law and religious freedom come into conflict with each other, religious freedom wins out and equality takes a backseat. Though three of the court's most conservative justices, Alito, Thomas, and Gorsuch, seem to want that outcome. But the court still allowed the Catholic Adoption Agency to discriminate against same-sex couples as prospective foster or adoptive parents. At the end of our last program, we were talking about how the court didn't spend much time talking about the harms this decision may cause to these prospective parents. Now let's talk about the harms that the decision may inflict on LGBTQ children in the foster care system. Well, I think there's multiple different harms, and this is some of what we addressed in our Friend of the Court brief on behalf of a number of organizations, a couple dozen organizations that serve LGBTQ young people. One serious harm is that if any well-qualified, positive, good homes are rejected based on the sexual orientation or gender identity or marital status of the would-be parents, that reduces the pool of potential homes. And there are lots and lots of children in the system who need a good home, a loving home, a safe home with adults who will love and and protect and care for them. So to have discrimination that reduces the number of homes means more children that don't get a placement. That is really bad. And the Supreme Court got that issue backwards in the Fulton decision. The court seemed to accept the 
argument made by Catholic Social Services that if they were forced to leave the system, if they couldn't get their contract renewed, they would not be doing work in this area, and their not doing work in the area would reduce the number of homes. That's a mistake because if they don't get the contract and the contract instead goes to another agency that welcomes everybody and screens people based on their competence rather than their identity, that would eliminate the discrimination and increase the available homes. So that's one type of harm. Another type of harm, though, that we addressed is the message in the system that there's something wrong with same-sex couples who want to be parents. If you recognize the grossly disproportionate representation in the system of young people who are LGBTQ, and we are overrepresented in that system for a number of different reasons, but some of it includes family rejection. So we have young people in the system, many of whom are are traumatized in a number of different ways, and many of whom have received a message that there's something wrong with them. There's something bad or broken or wrong about who they are. It's a terribly damaging message for anyone, but especially for young people. So a message that certain category of adults are going to be turned away because they're not acceptable to be parents. That message does not happen in a vacuum. That happens as part of a system in which the young people are living. And it's impossible to believe that they don't hear that message, that they don't recognize that the agency that they're interacting with holds that view of people like them. And that when they grow up, this agency, the adults who are caring for them and teaching them and setting the parameters of their lives in the system, that those adults think that they would not be eligible, they would not be good parents either, just because of who they are. So there are multiple types of stigmatizing messages, as well as a practical message of improperly reducing the likelihood that any particular child will get placed because of improperly reducing the number of potential homes. That's an important part of why Lambda Legal is really focused on this problem. Of course, we care about same-sex parents and couples who who want to provide a, a home to a child or children who need a loving home. Of course, we care about that. And of course, we care about the stigmatizing and, and destructive harm of this kind of discriminatory message. But our top priority and the top priority of the child welfare system is the best interest of the children. And that specifically must include the LGBTQ children. And this arrangement is not good for them. And the Supreme Court seems to have failed to understand it, failed to really appreciate and prioritize the needs of those children when talking with such concern about the religious interests of a private religious agency. And are there likely to be real-world effects or significance beyond the context of government contracts for foster and adoption services? Well, there really could be, and that's something we're quite concerned about. These days, government at all levels contracts with private agencies to perform essential services for members of the public. And often, faith-based agencies contract to provide those services as well as non-religious agencies. But these range from everything from providing homeless services to nutrition support services to disaster relief, various types of programs to help people in crisis like substance abuse recovery or anger management. There can be housing supports. There can be medical care, certainly certain types of mental health care. It really runs 
it runs the gamut. What's most important is that many of these services are provided to people who are in need and often are least able to go shopping around to try to find alternative providers if the provider that is in their general area or accessible to them for whatever reason is one that would reject them or would impose religion upon them or would provide the services in a way that has some sort of a stigmatizing or harmful message to them or would just outright refuse to serve them or might serve them as long as they accept conditions that really are terribly stigmatizing or harmful. For example, refusing to respect the gender of a transgender person and and insist that the person be housed inappropriately, just as one example. We have a real problem now with a political movement that has taken as a rallying cry or, or a banner, if you will, the idea that government must, as a matter of responsibility or respect for uh, free exercise of religion, provide funding for people or agencies who insist on providing services as a matter of their own religious mission according to their own religious tenets or beliefs, as opposed to agreeing to follow the rules that apply to everyone, including non-discrimination rules. We know that there is disproportionate poverty among LGBTQ communities for all the reasons that are kind of obvious, including employment discrimination, and that Living in a society with so much discrimination and stigma tends to lead some people, not everyone, but there are elevated rates of substance abuse and dependency and people experiencing violence and people needing a range of types of support in crisis. So there is quite a concern that this Supreme Court seems to now be developing a pattern of elevating religious rights over other rights, other important rights, including the right to be treated equally, respectfully, and to be included on the same terms as other people. So yeah, there's a lot of work left to do. And while it is a very good thing that this court seems to keep deciding these cases on narrow grounds based on specific facts that leave the non-discrimination rules absolutely in place and enforceable, we see the important questions and religious demands of some to be still hanging there in front of us unresolved, and the court has not been given clear direction and certainly has not been given clear direction that non-discrimination rules serve compelling public interests and must be enforced to protect people against unlawful discrimination, and especially so when the context is one of of services provided by government funded by taxpayer dollars to take care of members of the public who are in need of care and support, not discrimination. In a future case that might decide the big question, whether religious liberty outweighs equality when the two come into conflict, how do you think the court could be better educated on the issue of the harm caused by allowing religious liberty to override equality? Well, in all of these cases, Lambda Legal and, and many other organizations have been providing friend of the court briefs to bring to the court's attention the examples of the types of harm that affect LGBTQ people every day in so many different contexts. We've written quite a few friend of the court briefs giving examples from the cases that we litigate and the calls for help that come to our legal help desk. We try to give concrete 
fact-based information about the real harms because we know that too often the harms of discrimination happen outside public view. They're not familiar to many people. They're certainly maybe not familiar to some of the justices. And it is on on our shoulders and really uh, on the shoulders of, of everybody to be telling these stories, to be coming out, to participate in the process of education. But I think another important part of the context here is that it does depend sometimes on who brings the case. So the Fulton case was brought by Catholic Social Services. And their narrative drove at least a part of the case. And members of the court who were receptive to hearing the uh, story from Catholic Social Services' perspective wrote a decision that gives significant concern and support to that point of view. Well, Lambda Legal right now is litigating, as I mentioned, two cases on behalf of same-sex couples who were turned away from faith-based agencies when they came forward to apply to be a, a foster parents and provide a home to a child in need of a loving home. Those cases come from the perspective, at least initially, of the couple that was turned away. And so they are in a position to tell the story from their perspective, both what they offer and why they're so well qualified and situated to open their home to a child or children who would just thrive to have that opportunity. And some of them themselves are people of faith for whom religion is quite important. So their perspective on things is not against religion, it's against discrimination in the name of religion. So I think some of those cases also are very important to show who are the real people who are turned away? What's the impact on them of being turned away based on on who they are? Whether everybody has a right to be a foster parent or not, people do have a right not to be treated unfairly based on somebody else's religious beliefs, to be turned away from a publicly funded service. So I think that's quite important. The other perspective that I think can help the court understand the stakes here is to find ways to amplify the voices of children and young people who are in the system or who have been in the system, to keep reminding the grown-ups that our top responsibility is to provide the best environment and care and opportunities and love and support for children. And that that really has got to be our top priority. Sometimes it's more difficult to amplify those voices. Often minors don't participate in litigation the same way adults do. And sometimes people who have gone through a difficult experience don't want to keep reliving it by talking about it publicly. They want to just move on. But I think the voices of children are particularly important here. And and we do prioritize trying to bring those voices forward, too. This is Outcasting. Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, produced in New York by Media for the Public Good, online at outcastingmedia.org. We're talking about what happens when people claim that their religious liberty entitles them to discriminate against LGBTQ people in ways that wouldn't be acceptable if the discrimination were against other minorities. Speaking with Outcaster Isha is our guest, Jenny Pizer, the Senior Counsel and Director of Law and Policy for Lambda Legal country's oldest and largest legal organization seeking full recognition of the civil rights of LGBT people and everyone living with HIV. We've talked on Outcasting with Bishop Jean Robinson, the first openly gay bishop in the Episcopal Church, and Rabbi Sharon Kleinbaum of Congregation Beit Simchat Torah, an LGBTQ-accepting synagogue in New York City. And we know that there are religions that embrace LGBTQ people as fully equal. So we know that not all religion is opposed to LGBTQ people. 
Is there a way to bridge the gap between religious organizations that embrace equality and those that oppose it? And I guess this is less a legal question than a philosophical one. Do religions evolve on LGBTQ issues? Well, absolutely, yes. We see that all the time. And we see that religions evolve not just on LGBTQ issues, but on issues of women's rights and acceptance and engagement with people of other faiths. There's such a variety. That is an important part of why the legal test has been that the government should not judge different religious beliefs and should prioritize organizing society or having the law operate in a way that makes it possible for diverse religious views to flourish. I think some of this is a conversation among people of different faiths, including the many, many countless LGBTQ people who themselves are people of faith, who care deeply about their religious values or their religious community. We've seen over the years congregations arise that are initially founded and primarily for LGBTQ people, but many, if not most, if not all of them, tend to also be welcoming of of friends and family members and allies, and many of them have grown in wonderful ways as our movement has grown. I think about the central importance of the faith leadership and faith constituencies in our work to win the freedom to marry. It was very important that there be clergy and congregations of people calling out the mistake of those who would claim that there's a religious monolith opposed to equality for same-sex couples or opposed to equality for LGBTQ people. I mean, precisely the opposite is true. Many faith traditions prioritize welcoming the stranger, accepting people that are different, being kind and welcoming and respectful to everyone. And I think the religious voices were and continue to be incredibly important. And also the principle that there should be separation of church and state, and government should be able to say, we insist on our services being provided in a way that is available equally to everyone. And if a faith-based agency can do that, then they're welcome to do the work. And if they can't do that, well, then maybe they shouldn't be trying to do this particular type of work for the government, treating people of other faith traditions. But I do think the bottom line is that the conversations continue. They are incredibly important, and and it continues to be a priority to call out and to push back against the idea that anti-LGBTQ religious views are somehow more credible, more important, more numerous than the loving, supporting, accepting religious views. Sometimes certain views are expressed more loudly. That does not make them more numerous or more solidly based in doctrine or in the sacred texts. It just means some people are being louder than others, and that means that people who want to stand for welcome equality, inclusion, and love need to do a little more organizing and a little more amplifying of those loving and inclusive voices. Do you know of any cases coming up that might give the Supreme Court the opportunity to resolve the question of whether religious liberty overrides equality? Well, yes, for better or worse, there are quite a few cases in the pipeline. I I mentioned a couple of cases that are about how faith-based agencies that do child welfare services are uh, turning away same-sex couples. But there also continue to be, unfortunately, quite a few cases 
about wedding-related services. In fact, there's a, a case that comes out of the state of Washington brought by a florist who refused to sell flowers to a customer for his wedding to his now husband. That's a case that's been percolating in the system for quite a few years, and it is pending on the court's docket, and the court could decide to take it any day or might decline to take it. But that is a whole category of of cases. And then there are other cases about other types of services. And there are cases about religious schools and people that are employed by faith-based agencies or employers. And and then there are sometimes cases about people employed by a non-religious employer who are seeking expanded religious rights to maybe not do part of their job or to have certain types of freedom to not follow the rules or sometimes freedom to not work with LGBT coworkers or to talk about religion at the workplace. These issues are very much alive and percolating. We have in the past had much clearer legal rules to guide all these contexts that I think gave much useful clarity to take the you know, the day-to-day example that people sometimes use is the the religious freedom of any person is important and protected up until the point that their religiously motivated conduct would harm another person, including the harms of discrimination. The current Supreme Court, by issuing these kind of one-off decisions in which the religious claimant wins, but without applying the test in a familiar way, seeming to change the doctrine but not announcing a change, is inviting a lot more litigation because it seems to offer to those who want to expand religious rights a promising venue to bring their cases. So it hasn't happened yet. I have to keep reemphasizing the civil rights laws are intact. The rules have not yet been changed. But we see in the Fulton case in these, uh, the majority opinion and, and more so in the concurring opinions, that we have at least five justices who are wrestling with and don't approve of the current legal test. And the question is, in what case, in what context, and when will some of those different views gel into a decision that does change the governing law? It hasn't happened yet, but there are lots of cases that could come to the court, that the court could decide to take as a vehicle for changing the rules that apply in this context. And so I say, stay tuned. I think we're going to see a lot more activity probably before we get clear answers to these questions. I know we can't predict any particular result, but does Fulton give us any idea of what the result or reasoning might be in this future case? Well, we have hints, but I think it really is hard to tell. I think what we can tell for sure is that there are lively conversations going on behind closed doors at the high court with justices trying to persuade each other to alter the test in this direction or that direction. And what I hope is also very much part of the mix, and I suspect that it is based on the results that we're getting, these sort of non-decisions, is some serious recognition that changing the test to allow religiously motivated conduct to override the rules that are there to protect people from each other is a dangerous, I won't call it a game, is a dangerous endeavor. And that's what we see, I think, in Justice Amy Coney Barrett's concurring opinion. So I'm hopeful that that means that if we do see a change in the legal test, it would not be to adopt 
the most rigorous strict scrutiny test that makes it very difficult for government to enforce non-discrimination laws, and instead might be some kind of much more subtle test that might give religion some additional protection, but also would acknowledge, as the prior test before 1990 did, some important recognition of the rights of third parties and the balancing or the relationship between those things. I hope that my reading of some tea leaves in that direction is accurate and not just a, a wishful thinking on my part. But I guess in the coming months and, and years, we'll know whether I'm being too hopeful in that regard. Is there anything else about the Fulton case we haven't talked about? Well, I think the closing theme that I would stress is that these legal doctrines can be complicated. What is less complicated, I think, is some of the language that's being used. It has been somewhat alarming to see a couple of the justices, and I'll, I'll call out Justice Alito and Justice Thomas in particular, who have given public speeches and have written actually in formal opinions from the court from their perspective that conservative Christians, in their view, are under attack and being victimized by the social changes that are happening around us. I think we can only understand that perspective if we recognize that they're speaking from a worldview in which there has been freedom to discriminate. There has been great deference to certain particular Christian religious beliefs. And our movement for LGBTQ equality, as well as other movements that are about equality and respect for the individual and access to reproductive health care, for example, are about insisting on more freedom for everyone, more equality for everyone. That is a challenge to an age-old worldview. So I find it surprising and troubling the tone that we see in, in some of the writings and speeches that, that those two jurists in particular have been giving recently. And I think we should hear it as serious evidence of people resisting change because they feel the world is changing too much. Perhaps they see some of their privilege being taken away and they are fierce about it. They're very angry about it. We need to take that as evidence of the seriousness of the work that we have ahead, the conversations we need to have, and in particular, our need to show that we are members of families everywhere, and that providing inclusion and equality for LGBTQ people is in keeping with the best American traditions, and it's not a threat to anyone else. It might reduce the privilege that some groups have had, a privilege to disrespect others, perhaps, but it is in keeping with core American values, and it really isn't a threat to anybody else. I do think we have quite a lot of work ahead of us, but I think it is work uh, that is in the best traditions of our social change movements, and uh, it's a wonderful thing to focus on as we continue to celebrate uh, LGBTQ pride. That's all the time we have, so let's continue the conversation next time. Thanks, Jenny. Thanks so much. Great to be with you. That's it for this 14th part of our series on the conflict between equality for LGBTQ people and those who cite religious liberty to justify discriminating against us. If you've missed any part of this series, it's available on our website, outcastingmedia.org. This program has been produced by the Outcasting team, including youth participants, Isha, Rose, Jada, Justin, Lil, Charlotte, Tim, Sasha, and me, Chris. Our executive producer is Mark Sofis. 
Outcasting is produced in New York by Media for the Public Good. More information is available at outcastingmedia.org. You'll find information about the show, listen links for all Outcasting content, and the podcast link. You can also find Outcasting on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, Radio Public, and other major podcast sites. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. If you're having trouble, whether it's at home or school, or just with yourself, call the Trevor Project hotline at 866-488-7386 or visit them online at thetrevorproject.org. The Trevor Project is an organization dedicated to LGBTQ youth suicide prevention. Call them if you have a problem. Seriously, don't be scared. They even have an online chat you can use if you don't want to talk on the phone. Being different isn't a reason to hate or hurt yourself. All right, go get a piece of paper. I'll say it one more time. 866-488-7386 or online at thetrevorproject.org. You can also find a link on our site, outcastingmedia.org, under Outcasting, LGBTQ Resources. Thanks, and thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this edition of Outcasting, please make your tax-deductible contribution today. We can't do programs like this without your support. To make your donation, please visit us at outcastingmedia.org and click on support. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. Thanks.